Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 77. Are you a beginner or intermediate Python programmer who's made it through some of the fundamentals? Have you tried to tackle a big project but got stuck and frustrated? Completing some small projects might be the answer. This week on the show, we have author Al Swigert to talk about his new book, The Big Book of Small Python Projects. We discuss the advantages of sometimes thinking small in terms of Python programs, We talk about completing projects and the benefits of manually copying code by typing it in yourself. Al also has suggestions about tools for beginners and intermediate developers. This episode is sponsored by RevAI, the most trusted way to build global speech-to-text to to insights, products, and workflows. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Al. Welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back on here again. Yeah, you've been busy. You've been (laughs) making books... All throughout this w- wonderful time. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's been pretty cool. That's that's what I would like people to to think. Yes, I've been very busy and productive, and not just sort of staring at the wall during the pandemic. <laughs> well, it seems that way from the outside. Um, definitely, I really like the format for your new book, the the big book of small Python projects. So I have a bunch of questions about that generally, but I thought maybe we could start off talking about y- you were on a panel with a bunch of other Python authors at PyCascades. And I thought I could include a link for that. Um, I think it's really interesting, kind of some of the stuff you guys got into there um, about, it was basically everything, (laughs) a very lofty title, everything you need to know about writing technical Python books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I saw that title. I was like, I I think we're going to need more than 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what were the kinds of things you covered in the talk? Uh, mostly that it was, uh, of course, a lot more work than I realized. And uh, just talking about the the general process that I have, which isn't too much of a surprise. I usually just start with a, uh, considering the audience of who this book is for, because I don't want to write something that other people have already written about. And yeah, I start with an outline and I, I mostly just try to get the table of contents set. And then I just sort of fill in the skeleton from there where I, I just make notes of like, hey, I sort of want to have a paragraph about this and a paragraph about this, and I'll have a a random text file of scratch text that I've written that I I'm not going to include in the book, but also I've really have trouble letting it go, so I take it out <laughs> of the book and I put it into the scratch file where nobody will ever see it. But it's it's not the same as 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 just editing out, it's sort of like uh, checking in commented out code. Hmm. Okay. I know it's probably a bad habit, but uh, but I kind of do it anyway. And then I also have other fi- uh, text files of just sort of whenever I think of a thing that needs to go back into an earlier chapter, but probably affects uh, a lot of other bits of the book. I mean, it's it always <laughs> I'm always astounded when I get done with a book project, and it's just a book that you can read from front 
to back. And <laughs> that was very much not the process of creating that book. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. That's interesting. I I approach making video courses in kind of a similar way with uh, definitely the table of contents part. But I always come back um, and create an introduction really after all of it because it really makes more sense to like yeah. teach people like, this is really what we're going to cover and this is what, you know, what's important. And then kind of the same thing with like a summary at the very, very tail. Yeah. I always, I always do the introduction chapter last because I start off uh, writing the book about what I think it's going to be about. And then I finally realize what the book is going to be about. And that's when I need to write the introduction. <laughs> I, I, th- I find it interesting that I think of it almost as like a, uh, you're commenting your writing <laughs> like yes. you'd comment your code this that technique sounds interesting um that it can help you maybe remind yourself of previous versions but also like where where is this supposed to go kind of is that kind of the idea or yeah i mean mostly it's it's a, a code smell it's sort of a bad habit to uh comment out code and then check that commented out code into source control because it's so well this this code isn't running because it's commented out so why are you why are you making a record of it as opposed to just commenting out code uh temporarily just to to debug things or try things out but yeah it's sort of in that in between space of i need to get rid of this because i don't need it but i also kind of want to hang on to it anyway just in case Hmm. so for for like 200 pages of book i'll usually have about 50 to 100 pages of scratch notes that I just uh, wanted to put in, but it just really didn't, I didn't have a place to fit it. Do you have a favorite tool you you write in? (laughs) Uh, Everybody is always astounded when I say this. To write books, I use Microsoft Word. <laughs> I don't uh, see anything wrong with that. That's totally fine. Uh, That's what it's designed for. <laughs> uh there there was a time when I first started out where I thought like, okay, I need to learn latex or latex or however it's pronounced. And then just trying to figure out how to do basic things like, hey, I want to have this image in the center of the page horizontally but not vertically and uh, 45 minutes uh, later, I'll uh, finally sort of figure out how that works. And then I want to add page. And it just got to be a huge headache. And I, when I started working with No Starch Press, they just provide a MS Word template to use. And wow, yeah, that, that it works. <laughs> They'll later take it and then pour it. All, that's just used for the editing. They'll pour that text into... Um, think like adobe indesign or some other desktop publishing tool yeah layout thing yeah okay yeah for proper layout when you started out programming i know we talked a little bit about this in our our previous episode Uh, what i'm wondering about though kind of to rehash it maybe a little bit is were you like a projects type of person were you taking other people's code like out of a magazine or a book and and typing them in when you were learning to code? Yeah, that's exactly how I learned. There was a a friend of mine in elementary school found a book in the library about basic programming. And so I basically had that book and then the the reference manual that came with the Compaq 386 computer. Okay. uh, (laughs) That, you know, it was technically, it's a reference manual for basic, so it has all the information in there. And I, I would read through that book and just not understand any of it 
whatsoever because yeah. they would just throw all this jargon at you. And uh, I was just like, well, I, I want to make Mario. How do I make Mario? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, but the other, the other book sort of just mostly taught through examples. It had the source code for a bunch of little games like Tic-Tac-Toe. Actually, Tic-Tac-Toe was the most complicated game at the very end of the book, and I could never get it working correctly. But a uh, really simple, like, guess the number text-based games. And I could actually understand that. And just from playing around with the uh, the source code, I could see all the, I noticed all the patterns for between the different games. And, you know, I, I really hate telling the story of how I learned to code because I'm one of those kids that, fortunately grew up with a pc in the house right and uh it sort of makes people think oh in order to program you have to have started when you were you know two years old or something like that but really like all the the quote-unquote games that i made for probably about the next eight years of my life were variations of those guess the number games i there there really wasn't that much to game design i guess it wasn't really a, a thing so much as it is now yeah I experienced that too. I, I know what you're saying that there were some tools that were out there, um, game maker kind of things, but in general, I was creating really simple text kind of games. Um, I had a, a Atom computer, which is like a thing that bolted onto the ColecoVision or whatever, yeah. and, and made it made it a computer. And that was really my first one where I could kind of hack on it. But it was, you know, very simple ideas. At most, I could get like you know, individual like blocks of like not even like individual pixels moving around the screen so it was very very basic yeah i i remember there was a thing called click and play okay that apparently was very popular in the 90s uh i remember it came with the pc that that my parents got when i was in high school and i looked at it and played around with it a bit and had no idea how to use it so i i promptly put it away and never touched it again and and now you know here uh, you know 20 years later i'm reading about other people who are like, I remember click and play. I made so many games with this and it was so much fun. And I really opened my eyes. I thought like, Oh wow. Well, I missed out on that, I guess. Um. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I want to, I do want to focus on maybe a little bit later. I I had a conversation with Marlene Mongami about the lack of resources for a lot of people just even to get to a computer or maybe what they have is like a phone or some other kinds of things. And I think it's neat how in your book you have you know ways to kind of access that code for for people who maybe don't have an actual like you know sit down at a desk, you know, computer sort of situation. I guess we could talk about it right now, but um I, I think that was that important to you to include those kinds of um, you know, other methodologies so people don't feel like excluded? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was um that was a big part of all the projects that I have in this book. So starting from the beginning, the book is the big book of small Python projects. And it's for sort of beginner intermediate programmers right. who who maybe they've gone through a Hello World tutorial with Python, and but they don't really know how to sit down and, and write a program. And so this book doesn't really have a lot of, of prose that teaches people how to program and explain concepts. Instead, it's just basically just the source code for 81 different games and simulations and little animation programs. But they're also all, uh, most of them are text-based, You're just using print and input, essentially. There are a few games that have colorful text, but uh, I'm basically just sticking with ASCII art and... 
I was, I was sort of worried that I was dating myself when I did this <laughs> because I mean, I've, I've talked to other programmers and who, who give me the line of like, well, what they should be teaching the kids these days to get them into programming is exactly the same things I did as a kid when I learned how to program. And so <laughs> I was really worried about that. But, but I also had the realization that the text-based medium was really great for keeping these programs simple because you could, since the, the source code is in text and the output of the program is in text, so you could always take some part of the output of the program and then trace it back to you know the the print call right. that actually produced it, and so you can. Uh, it's a lot easier to uh, develop that cause effect relationship between what code you write and what the code does. And so I had I started writing down a whole bunch of other, you know, what would be good small projects for for people to learn because. You know, once people have gone through those Hello World tutorials and they want to move on to some more intermediate content or, or learning materials, it becomes really hard to figure that out. And sometimes people will tell them like, oh, you can just take a look at open source projects. But, you know, if, you, if you've just gone through Hello World, you don't want to start looking through the Linux kernel source code as uh, for, for like, oh, this is how real programs work, because that's uh, so hard. But even even other you know uh, smaller open source projects these are written by professional software engineers mostly they might not have good documentation or they might not even have any onboarding materials for for new contributors and so that's that's a huge wall that you suddenly come to so i wanted to s- think of like well what if we had very small projects that were simple they don't use there's no additional libraries that you have to install and so I started writing up a list of sort of the the design uh, features that I, I wanted to follow or the, the design rules for all these projects. And so they are uh, keeping them small. I, I, choo- I chose 256 lines of code as my arbitrary limit just because it's a power of two. Um, and nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was... I was thinking, like, how can I explain the significance of 256? It's like, well, it's 2 to the 8, and that's the number of integers you can represent with a single byte. And I, I realized I was, like, going off on a tangent, so I just call it, uh, powers of 2 are lucky programmer numbers. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go, totally. Yeah, so I wanted them to be small. I also wanted them to be text-based, so that you don't have to install or worry about graphics and mouse input and screen resolution and and also being text based it really <laughs> lowers the expectations i guess of of these programs cuz they're just small games that are supposed to be amusing for about 5 minutes and uh i think minecraft did this beautifully with its retro pixel art style where just by making the graphics look simpler as the aesthetic it really eased the burden on for the developer because the 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 creator of minecraft was just a single person when he started out and so you know he didn't have a lot of time to make incredible art for his game so he just started off with just blocky looking graphics and it just became a style in its own right yeah totally so i decided if you just stick with text and then maybe some ascii art uh that you can you know using the dashes and underline characters as lines and or the back and forward slashes as diagonal lines uh, you can start drawing pictures with just text characters placed around there. So it would be enough to convey sort of like a playing card 
or or very simple graphics that way. So small and text-based with no additional modules that need that you need to install. I have a, a list of a few modules that some of the games require such as Piperclip to just copy and to add copy and paste features to the program. Hmm. But for the most part, you can just use them, use the uh, Python standard library for, for all of this. And that allows it to really be universal. Like you have eliminated all these, like you said, the complexity of additional packages and the, the platforms that they would have to run on. It's like, if you can run Python, you can basically run any of these small programs, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, some of the some of the programs will have like a level file that they'll read from, but for the most part, they only use standard I.O. For, uh, for the text input and output. So you can run most of these programs on Python Anywhere or these, these browser-based Python interpreters. So you don't even need to have Python installed on your computer then. To, to actually have it run, play around with. And then another great thing about not having additional libraries that you need to install is that the code is a lot more portable. So if this book does well, I could do a, a big book of small JavaScript programs or small Java programs or small C-sharp programs. And, and the code translates fairly well. So that's, that was also something that I had in mind when I, when I started writing this book as well. Yeah, I can see that. And and like you're saying that generally it's going to be a, a single file that the thing's going to run on, but like there are a couple exceptions there where it might be a couple. One of the things that you were saying before that was the idea of like learning and going and looking at some large project out there like a Flask or a Django or some other, you know, something somebody says, oh, you should just go look at source code, is it's going to be multiple files <laughs> oh, that yeah. reference each other and you don't even know how they tie together. And so that this is definitely going to, you know, you can kind of hold it, maybe almost all of it in your head, you know, depending on, you know, how good your memory is as far as active RAM. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a huge thing with, with programming too. And, and programmers are also sort of to blame for that just because what software developers love doing is creating hierarchies of concepts or files. Yeah. And, and we think we're adding organization to our code, but really we're just adding a sort of bureaucracy <laughs> to our code projects. But because, you know, in our head, it makes sense like, oh, well, this these should be this code should be in this file because it's related to this other thing and then you've created this complicated system of folders and subfolders and sub subfolders with other files when really you could have just thrown it all into one .py file yeah definitely <laughs> so so yeah i i've kept all of them in a, a single python source file and the other nice thing about that too is that it makes it a lot easier to share as well. One of the big problems with with just passing code to someone else and getting it to run on their computer is that you have to do all the environment setup and and everything else. But for all of these, you can just uh, do a select all and then copy and then paste it into a forum or into an email even, as long as it doesn't mangle the white space. But it's just a single file that they have to deal with, which, yeah, every every time that you have something that the user or the reader needs to do, you're probably going to lose about half of your audience for each step. Mm. And so, you know, if they have to install some some graphics library, half of your readers aren't going to be able to get that. And then they're just 
out of luck and they can't pr- uh, progress any further. And then I guess they become uh, accountants or lawyers or something else besides software engineers. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. The, the, the dividing your, your audience as you go. Um, I have experienced that though, like in trying to follow other online tutorials where you were hoping that it was going to be for, uh, you know, particular, like kind of a universal platform. Like you're showing me this concept, but pretty soon you're like, okay, well that guy had Linux and, or, you know, whoever wrote it had that particular flavor of stuff and didn't really think outside the box. And you're right. You stumble into it and you're like, I don't, (laughs) I'm just trying to learn here. And I'm now having to research, you know, all these different potential options or how it works on my machine, which is super frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's 1998 and I'm using click and play all over again. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well this looks really cool, but I can't actually do anything with it. So I'm just not going to touch it ever again. (laughs) Rev. AI, the most trusted way to build global speech-to-text to to insights, products, and workflows. Trained on more than 50,000 hours of human-transcribed verbatim speech data covering a wide range of topics, RevAI offers developers unparalleled speech recognition accuracy. With word error rates lower than similar solutions from major players like Amazon and Google, your first five hours are on us. Try us out today at RevAI. That's R-E-V dot A-I. I like your instructions for the the steps in the book. The idea of, you know, obviously it's a book. Anybody can kind of approach it how they want, but you have a suggested methodology to kind of get people going. I don't know. I thought it was, it was clever, and I, I like the steps, especially for a beginner, that they can kind of get an idea of what's happening. Is it okay? We just kind of go through them a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the advice that I that I give to readers is to essentially just sort of first of all run the program, just you know copy and paste it, and then run it and see what it does, so that you have an idea of what you're actually creating. Uh, <laughs> what was mine supposed to do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm done with it? <laughs> um, yeah, and then that way, you know, they can also just play these games or and have fun, and it sort of just builds up excitement. And also, they can see like, oh, these are these are fairly simple programs. You know, I'm not setting out to make Minecraft in a single weekend or anything like that. Right. And then after after playing around with it, I tell them, okay, just erase everything and then just copy by hand the code out of the book, just typing it along. And I don't, I have no like major research to back me up, but for me anyway, just writing out the code is, I get used to it. I think it just slows me down enough that I have to pay attention to each line since I'm typing it out. If I'm just reading the code or if I'm just copying and pasting it, I, I, you know, I very quickly just like glance over it and I don't actually know what I'm doing. And, and after you're done entering it yourself, just go ahead and run it. And then there's going to be errors. And so pay attention to sort of the, the error line, the error messages. I feel like that's another part of programming that really trips up beginners is because i don't think any programmer ever really writes an error message thinking that a human being is going to read it one day so i mean python had like syntax error invalid syntax yeah for the longest time and then in python 310 they've started adding a lot more descriptive error messages which i yeah i'm excited by that we've been talking a little bit on the show the the idea that there'd be like these little sort of symbols like carrot 
kind of, you know, going back to your ASCII art thing, yeah. you know, actually pointing at like this, this is what's going on. That's potentially the problem as opposed to very often it would be showing you, well, I got up to here uh, and then it failed. And so you're like maybe looking at the wrong place as to where the right. the, the error might be happening. And it's it's nice. I'm liking this new stuff that they're adding. Yeah, I, I think you talked about this in, in an episode, but where you would get a zero divide error, but it yeah. wouldn't show you uh, before where exactly that zero divide was happening. <laughs> so if the line has multiple divisions uh, operations in it, uh, you're sort of just, you have to guess as to like, oh, what was set to zero here? Scratching your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the PEP is good. And I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll definitely include a link for it. And it has the actual written examples which is a nice thing about the peps too being a documentation thing that they're they're including more and more examples at least in my opinion i i'm you know fairly new to language but as i'm reading more about it and and seeing this kind of stuff added to the language uh, it's definitely making me feel more comfortable with it all the time and it becoming even an even better you know, teaching tool. Yeah, that's something that I've really noticed with programming is, uh, you know, because these, you know, improved error messages, that's not a new programming language feature or or some new algorithm or something like that. Right. But it is incredibly important because I feel like Python's popularity is mostly because it's a programming language that has the gentlest learning curve possible for beginners. So it's it's not just computer science majors who can who can learn to program with it. It's really anybody who has a, a small interest in programming. Yeah, yeah. The intimidation factor for programming has always been uh, much larger of an issue than you know if how good you are at math or or wh- how old you are when you start to learn how to program. Yeah. It always seems like people are sending you off to Hogwarts or something, you know, and you're going to become like this magician. (laughs) And when you come back, they're not going to understand anything that you're doing, you know. It's like, no, actually. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of wild. And on top of that, the magicians also don't really understand what they're doing at the time either. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Too funny. But yeah, uh, so, you know, type in the code, uh, fix the errors that come up, and... Then I, I also sort of say like, well, and then at the same time, just uh, re-implement it on your own. Uh, it, you don't have to copy it exactly the way uh, the other the program originally ran, so you're not memorizing code. Yeah. But you can make your own version of it, which is so much more realistic than than just following along with the code in a tutorial or something like that. And hopefully, I've I've have I have sort of a range. Uh, some of these programs are really simple, and they're just sort of like 20 or 30 lines of code. And then some of them, I actually do break that 256 line limit. Um, but, you know, usually they'll just be around like 200 something lines of code. And uh, that's small enough where, you know, for a beginner, that could be like a weekend project. Yeah, totally. Or something that they can work on. Or an afternoon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these, there's there's 81 of these projects. So if you don't like one thing, you can probably just skip around. I have them listed in alphabetical order. I realize that's probably the the easiest way just to have them. And then in the back, I have uh, sort of an index. Uh, each project has has a set of tags with it. So some of them are like marked for beginners and some of them are games. Okay. Some of them are animations and some of them are like card games specifically or puzzles or mazes or uh, encryption programs or something like that. Yeah, in your list of of stuff you mentioned beyond going through just 
using the error system to find you know typos or bugs and and so forth of of trying to run the code you you mentioned running it under a debugger and i recently had nina on to to talk about debugging mm-hmm. uh, nina zakarenko and we talked about you know using it across your different projects but i th- think this is a really nice time to introduce it especially for somebody who's a beginner or intermediate person to have a small program to debug you know and walk through and and see as the code is executing but also to also see you know okay what are the values of things as we're going along and so i think this is actually a nice combination of things to implement as you're going along and i i've we we were talking about it that we feel like you know the print statement has always been the thing that has always been thrown out there in so many of the tutorials of python yes but a debugger is like such it's not that big of an additional step it's not that you know it's not like five times as difficult it's just like another little step in your path of learning python yeah i i think nina had had a talk or something that was that was called uh, like yeah. stop printing start debugging something like that yeah yeah as uh Goodbye, print. Hello, debugger. Oh, yes, I think. yes. That is <laughs> that is a much uh, snappier title than than the one I had. Yes, yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I do talk about the debugger uh, in the introduction chapter. I mean, looking back over it now, I wish I went into far more detail about the how the, the debugger works. And and even with my other books, I've come to realize that really we should be teaching the debug the debugger a lot earlier than than we do currently usually like debugging is sort of like one of those things like documentation uh that's sort of put in at the very back of of the book but i feel like probably right after you introduce flow control like loops and if statements that would probably be the best time to to say and now here's how the debugger works don't don't be scared of it. Yeah. Yeah. Watch your stuff travel through those loops and structures and yeah, I like that about that. That's cool. Yeah. It's um it's one of those things that we you know, once you've been programming for years and years, you sort of forget that there was a time that you didn't know that. Um and the other thing that I, I covered is just being able to type. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna talk about that. Yeah, and, and basic text editor features. Yeah, you you um there's like three things I want to talk about now. I want to go back before we go into typing. You you talk about, okay, modify it in ways that you think, you know, you could make it your own. Yes. Oh, yeah. Are there other suggestions that you have about how should people experiment with this code? I mean, I mean obviously, you're not trying to, to, you know, set guidelines or rules behind it, but are there suggestions that you're saying, hey, you know, don't just leave this as it is. Like, this is your chance to kind of make it your own. Are there other suggestions you you make for that? Oh, yes, yes. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and so also, uh, you know, finally, after after you've typed it in and you've created your own, um, I just sort of encourage experimentation. There are some places in some of these projects where I'll have a comment with a little exclamation point, and I'll just say, like, hey, try changing this to some other value, uh, or try commenting out the following lines of code and see how the behavior changes. And that's just to, to help build up that sort of cause and effect between the what you've written and, and what happens. So each project also has like a small list of possible changes that you can make. And then also um, there's a section called exploring the program where I'll make suggestions for changes you can make. And some of these suggestions will 
purposefully just crash the program, but they will crash the program in an interesting way. (laughs) (laughs) Or just add like a really silly, like infinite loop or some, some like silly uh, uh, behavior from the program that is not correct, but it is kind of fun to play with. And that's a lot of that is also just to get rid of that intimidation factor of like, Oh no, my program crashed. Yeah, this can happen. And you know, don't, be upset. Errors are your friends. They're trying to tell you things. Yeah, there's there's yeah. no way you can damage <laughs> your computer by having your program crash. I mean, crash sounds kind of scary, actually, but really it just means uh, the operating system decided to stop your program because it got an instruction it doesn't know how to do. I had these Atari computers back in the day. Um, it was the Atari ST series. Mm-hmm. And it, instead of like giving like a blue screen or whatever, it would it would show a bomb <laughs> when, you, when you crashed your computer and you could know like how like intense the crash was by the number of bombs <laughs> that I is terrifying that. Like, i know i was like oh that was a four bomb <laughs> crash there it was pretty crazy <laughs> oh man so yeah i don't know if that's a, if that's a, a great icon for that but it, i always found that fascinating yeah so. yeah there's um it's it's something that I have to keep in mind. I think uh, when I started creating programs for Scratch, which is the uh, the tool for the programming environment from MIT for uh, programming for kids, uh, usually ages like eight to twelve. Uh, I think they recommend eight to sixteen, but usually I see like eight to twelve or fourteen is is the ages that I see. And they made a lot of great design choices for that. And I also realized, you know, because the the website where you publish your programs is mostly for kids. I started realizing, like, you know, even having, like, mocking messages from a game, like, when you lose, like, it would say, like, haha, you lose, loser, or something like that. I sort of realized, like, oh, or even some kids would point out, it's like, hey, you know, the game doesn't have to make fun of you just because you lost it. It's actually (laughs) fine to lose at a video game. It's, uh, uh, and then I started thinking, like, oh, yeah, why? (laughs) There, There is sort of a, you build up this idea of like, right, I'm not just making programs for myself or some buddies. Right. You know, you have to sort of think like, oh, what does this look like to somebody who is not like you? Somebody who, you know, maybe English isn't their first language or they're a different age, like much, much younger or much, much older than you. Or just, you know, have some different cultural context. Yeah, it doesn't translate always, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I Going to your typing thing, I went to that first website you suggested and I don't, I don't have it written down oh yeah but i was like wow that's a really great online resource yeah uh, i was impressed i i was actually for a while thinking about making my own typing tutor program and so i, I started doing a lot of research online and i and i realized how much better they are today because um, I, I also downloaded some older programs and and i think these were sort of like the older ones were sort of typing tutors made by programmers who didn't do any actual sort of pedagogical research or anything like that. They would just be like, sure. oh, these the space aliens with a word are appearing and type the word to shoot them in. Right. But like a lot of good typing programs, uh, I think this like typingclub.com and typing.com. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one I was checking out. Yeah. Typingclub.com and had like, I, I didn't run the first uh, evaluation thing where it sort of looks at your level i haven't done that yet but i'm yeah probably going to this afternoon yeah because it's, it's, <laughs> i thought it was interesting <laughs> i mean it's it's really nice because they'll have like a picture of the keyboard with transparent hands on it 
So that way, and and they'll reiterate that the main rule that you should always follow when learning how to type is don't look at your own hands. Yeah. And so if you need to know where a key is, you can look on the screen and find it. I thought like, you know, once once somebody shows you that, you realize like, wow, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Why don't all typing programs have that sort of thing? And and it it is important because, you know, you don't need to be a fast typist to to be a programmer. Sure. But it's one of those things where uh it's a minor frustration that you can get past when you have to like type out a bunch of code and then you realize you've, you've mistyped it. So you have to go back and and change it around. So, you know, having just getting beyond the hunt and peck stage of typing is really helpful. And so this is also something that scratch was able to sidestep completely with their sort of snap together code blocks. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, because I, I realized this when I started teaching kids for a Saturday morning programming class that, uh, well, kids, you know, if you're nine or 10 years old, you don't necessarily right. know how to type. And if anything, you're just used to smartphones and tablets where you're uh, tapping. And they autocomplete. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so not having that in Scratch was was really great. But now if you're moving on to Python, this is sort of when you should learn how to type you know, not properly with fingers on the home row at all times, but just be able to to type moderately well, uh, and you'll avoid a, a lot of you know slowdowns, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the, there were like six hundred something lessons I saw. It was like crazy. It really goes on. I was wondering if <laughs> I'd seen some other language typing tutor programs or whatever that were kind of geared for programmers, where they really threw your hands into the you know, the curly braces and other kinds of things. And I'm wondering if that could be like the side module they could add to something oh, like wow, that. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, obviously, it would, wouldn't, wouldn't be something they'd have initially, but I, I should suggest it. Because I think that would be good. I mean, not, you know, Python has its own set of those, but it would be good if you got your hands comfortable with, you know, finding those kinds of things, the, you know, the hash mark and all yeah. those kinds of, you know, fundamental, uh, <laughs> I can, you know, symbols you use all the time right. there's a there's a unix command line program called type speed oh that's the one i think that was basically one of these one of these older typing programs but it mostly uh, one of the word sets you can have is uh like unix commands okay and so it's you know the the letter frequency is much different from typing regular english and you also get used to just typing weird characters and you know uh, ioctal or, um, or just, you know, <laughs> words that, yeah, you normally don't, uh, types there. So that's also another thing. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. I feel like it's really connected to this week's topic. The course is designed to help you take your skills to the next level by building projects. It's titled grow your Python portfolio with 13 intermediate project ideas. The course is based on a real Python article by Habib Shobaju, and in the course, Darren Jones takes you through the importance of building projects, the major platforms you can build projects for. It includes details for command line, web, and graphical user interfaces, and has 13 different project ideas that you can work on, along with multiple tips for working on those projects. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to create projects that you can share with others and demonstrate your knowledge. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. 
So you had a few suggestions in your introduction also about IDEs, and you kind of uh, centered initially on on the Mu editor. I'm thinking that's how it's pronounced. Yes. And uh, w- why do you like that one? So originally, I, I really liked Idle, which is the IDE that comes with Python because it's it's simple. Yeah. It's really simple. It's just sort of a bare-bones editor, and I think having an editor bundled with with python is a phenomenal idea because then you you know you don't have to have people learning how to use text editors and then learning how to use the command line so that they could run python with their their file or something it's it's a lot easier but it's uh i did have some ideas for how idle could be improved and and i wrote up a a bunch of them and then the the creators of mu sort of implemented a lot of those same ideas turns out I found out about Mew at uh, from a PyCon video, and sort of things like uh, uh, tabbed uh, tabs for each of the files and a separate pane that's uh, still attached. Well, uh, a pane that is attached to the main window that shows the output. Yeah. Currently, Idle has the file editor window and then the interactive shell window, but they're separate windows. And a really common thing that beginners send me emails about is they don't know how to run their code because they're either entering code into the file editor when they wanted to put it into the interactive shell or vice versa. And and the only thing that I can really say because they look so similar to each other is like, well, the interactive shell has the three angle brackets for the prompt. Yeah. I just look yeah. for that. But yeah, uh, at the same time, though, there are people who are um, comfortable enough just moving into something like Visual Studio Code. Like PyCharm. Or yeah, something. PyCharm, the community edition for that. And uh, and I tell people, like, these are great. Don't don't worry too much about the really complicated-looking interface that has, you know, 80% of those features you're not even going to use your first year, basically. Yeah. And, and those are nice, too, because they also have the uh, debugger built in with them. Yep. Yeah, which is very powerful. It's yeah, nice. and and just on top of typing, I also go into how do you edit text uh, because I realized there's there's a lot of things I do just sort of like hitting Control A, well, like knowing the keyboard shortcuts, like for copy and paste and select all. Yeah, or holding down Shift and then pressing End so that you highlight the rest of the line. Yeah, those are so powerful. Yeah, yeah, and and they're they're all sort of things I just do naturally at this point because I've been doing them for so long. But again, I, I forget what I didn't know when I first started out, and and you can see this immediately with when you're teaching somebody to program, and you know they're doing things like you know pressing space several times instead of tab a couple times. Yeah, I I. I was teaching at a law firm. Uh, I was like basically to teach them all to use, you know, the software that they would were practiced in. But one of the main things I ended up doing is doing like classes on on Word actually, um, because they all used it and all their documentation was in Word. Yeah. And so a lot of times it was like, okay, let's do some of the things you're just talking about. Like, yes, you can click once to put your cursor in, but you know, if you double click on on a word, it selects the whole word. Or if you triple click, it'll select the entire line. And most people were like, what? You know, like they, you know, have never seen that. And then the things that you're talking about, like the combinations of, of shift and, you know, uh, control and arrows and, you know, selecting entire lines or, you know, stuff like that, that are, are such fundamental things that really can, you know, especially if, you know, this is a person who is working 
with text all day. Yeah. And you you maybe just sped them up <laughs> drastically, you know, with lots of little things like yeah, that. And um, I think those things being unlocked early are, are such great things for programmers to know. Yeah, and and we never sit down and, and teach anyone yeah. these things usually. Uh, even Even when we're like, here's how to learn how to use a computer, it's usually about how to browse the web and check email. Right. But uh, I think Cory Doctorow wrote an article in Wired uh, maybe like 20 years ago where he said, uh, uh, he was talking about a study where the, they found out that about 95% of people don't know about Control-F. Like that you can just press Control-F and then it'll open up a little dialogue to where you can find text, yeah. like enter text <laughs> that you want to find. And just, you know, something that seems really basic, but at the same time, most people don't know about it. You know, if they if they need to find a word or a name or something in a web page or in a document, they just manually scroll through and and just scan with their eyes. And so there are people who, you know, they would show like, hey, let me show you this thing, control F. And they would say, oh, my God, you've saved me years of my life <laughs> <laughs> from this one little thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Exactly. You know, and then you can like tell it how you want to replace things. And yeah, this these little things like, again, kind of the introduction yeah. to the magic. <laughs> yeah. So this introduction, I, I try to fit in a lot of these things just, you know, about like, here's how to copy paste, here's how to type, here's how to use, you know, write the code in the book, and here's how to use the debugger. But still, the, the introduction isn't that long. I, I wanted to keep it short. But uh, I sort of realized like, wow, this could probably be half the book if if I wanted it yeah. to be. But yeah, but the rest of the book then is is just sort of, you know, you don't have to read it front to back. You can just sort of uh, flip through it and then see the projects that you find interesting. Yeah, I want to talk about a few of the projects, but I want to mention one other thing that you included that I think is really kind of neat, which mm-hmm. is the online diff tool that you added. Yes. Yeah. So this is another thing. So the diff tool is, is often used for you know, submitting patches or just showing changes between two versions of, of sort of the same bit of text. This really helped me out when, because people would email me saying like, hey, my program doesn't work. Right. And for my earlier books, and I realized I could cut down on a lot of those emails if I just had uh, some sort of like online diff tool where they can copy and paste their code into my website and then uh, click a button and it'll immediately show all the lines of code that are different from the code that's in the book and yeah. this you know this was really helpful it doesn't have to be completely perfect like some white space can be off and it's fine or like they didn't type the comments i was talking about the extra lines or something yeah but it would also point out like hey yeah you typed a comma here when you wanted to put a period uh, something that you know you could look at the error message but you know, when you're a beginner the error messages don't really make a lot of sense and so you tend to tend to ignore them but like minor little things like that that could just really, you know, kind of, well, mostly save time and emails being sent to me, <laughs> fixing people's <laughs> code. Um, yeah, totally. But yeah, that's that's another uh, idea that I, that I learned uh, when teaching people how to program is, you know, all these minor mistakes where once you have years of experience, they don't really phase you at all because you're sort of used to it. It's like, oh yeah, this error message just comes up. Let's try this. Or, or even, you know, now is the time to, turn it off and turn it back on again um, to, to <laughs> magically fix it. Yeah. So what were, what were some of the projects that you were most eager to share? Okay. So I'm looking through a lot of these and, and I realized that I, I 
according to the Git repo that I started, I think I first started making these in 2018. Okay. I wanted to create a bunch of small games that only used print and input and didn't have graphics, but they were still fun. Yeah, like 2048 is like a great one. Yeah, exactly. That's that tile sliding game where you try to combine powers of two, the the lucky programmer numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so I realized, hey, that's something that doesn't, you know, it has graphics, but at the same time, you can recreate that with ASCII art, just using the lines and dashes, those text characters to draw out the boxes. Right and things so 2048 is is on there i just have like some pretty classic programs like guess the number or rock paper scissors these are usually uh programs that you that are that feature in a lot of beginner tutorials yeah and then i also try to have like a slight twist on them like i have rock paper scissors as project 59 and then project 60 is rock paper scissors except you always win (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, a slightly simpler program, really. But it, it looks the exact same, except the player is always winning. And the the idea is like, yeah, just hand this off to your friends and show them this and see how long it takes for them to figure out that they can't possibly lose at this game. <laughs> like 99 Bottles uh, is another program that's really common in a lot of beginner tutorials because it has, you know, you get an introduction to loops and you just have it print out the, the lyrics to the song 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall. So that's Project 50. And then Project 51 is uh, an alternate version of that where you start introducing slight changes and deformities to the text. Like it'll it'll replace a character with a blank or it'll double a character or it'll swap, it'll transpose two characters uh, each time it prints out the stanza. So as the song continues to print out more and more... <laughs> It starts looking more and more like you just got progressively more drunker <laughs> as you were as you were singing right. it. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of board games that I have. Uh, Moncala is is one. Um, I had a checkers program that was going to get into this book, but I had to cut down on on the content for that. There's some science and math programs I have. A periodic table of the elements and also um, nice. something that generates the multiplication table, something that can find factors or prime numbers or do the uh, the Kalatz sequence, which is also known as the 3x plus 1 uh, problem. It's often called the simplest impossible problem in mathematics. Uh, <laughs> that's That's in there. And then I have a lot of different visualizations. A lot of these uh, visualizations sort of just take advantage of the fact that as you print more and more lines of text to the screen it'll start the screen will start scrolling that text up and so i started making these small little like animations or like those old screensavers that all uh, scroll upwards so i have one that just shows sort of like a winding uh river I call it deep cave because when I first made it, I thought like, oh, it's like a cave going deeper and deeper into the earth. And then only after the book was published, it was like, it would have been a lot better if I just called that a river. <laughs> um, but um, something that... Yeah, I like the DVD logo. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's one where uh, that also kind of dates me, I, I feel like. But uh, but it'll have, yeah, it'll have a, like the little DVD text that just bounces around diagonally around the screen. And then it'll also keep count of how many times it hits the corner exactly. But uh, there's, there's a visualization of DNA, just the double helix that just repeats. And then also I have the, the matrix screensaver where, you know, instead of just like the green 
numbers and kanji characters yeah. scrolling down. It just has ones and zeros, but of course they're also scrolling up, but it's a very similar effect. And so that's that sort of describes a lot of these programs. It's like, oh, hey, it's like this thing, except much, much simpler. Yeah, I think they're great jumping off points too for people to, I don't know, it kind of brings me to this idea of like, the idea of finishing things, yes, <laughs> small things, yes, and what that promotes <laughs> in developers, you know, I, I think that that's a huge deal because, you know, I'm definitely one of those people that I I start a lot of things, <laughs> <laughs> so I like this idea of like let's let's finish some things together, you know, some yeah. small things, and the, like, what are your thoughts on that? that I mean, that was one of the big motivations for me working on these is because, you know, I would have these projects that are like, okay, I can have this done in like four or five months. Yeah. And it turns out actually that was wildly optimistic. And it was this project that wasn't really for other people. It was just something that I was working on. And, and so I started falling back on these tiny games and I realized this is a lot of fun because I'm actually finishing things. They're incredibly simple it's, you know, it's something I can finish and I can even show it to somebody else. Yeah, this I, I keep telling people, like, whenever you have an idea for a, a programming project that you want to work on, you know, create a list of what you, of what features you want it to have, and then try to cut that list down as much as possible. Yeah. And then also come up with a list of features that your program definitely won't have. Because at some point, <laughs> like, <laughs> two months into it, you're like, hey, it would be really cool if it could also send email notifications and uh, it, it turns out like, no, d- don't we specifically do not want to have email notifications on this thing because it's, it's so much more frustrating to have, you know, a dozen half finished projects than just like two or yeah. three finished projects. Uh, something that you can, that gives you that sense of, of accomplishment. Yeah. Which, which is sort of the entire reason, you know, that we learned to program isn't so that we can have half, finished software everywhere (laughs) you wouldn't think it but um (laughs) Uh, that definitely makes sense yeah so i have a couple kind of like just general meta questions uh about the book but but more about like what are areas of the language that like python that you see total beginners struggle with that you think maybe this helps with uh mostly is just the uh the sort of blank editor fear that people have okay. where they have this idea in their head of, of a program they want to create, but then they really just don't know how to start. They know all about uh, loops and variables and, and things like that. But when it comes to actually, you know, like how do you sit down and create something uh, they have no idea. And, and they also have all this sort of half remembered p- uh, pieces of bad advice. And so they'll think like, well, first I need to, you know, create, like five different source code files and this will have these functions and this will have this other things. And, and, you know, they don't realize like, actually it's fine. If you just throw it all together, you can, you know, get it working first and then get it working well after that. Because a lot of people are also just sort of worried about like, am I programming the right way? Like, am am I writing code the way that professional software developers write code? Right. And the answer to that is, uh, well, no, because there's no consensus whatsoever uh, from all the different jobs and companies I've, I've worked at. You know, every, everybody's sort of creating their own system that makes sense to them. 
And then all of their coworkers uh, who get hired later on have to deal with that afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, I just really wanted to have this like, here, here are little programs and they're not code snippets like in, in a lot of books where. No, they do stuff. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the biggest complaint I have about a lot of programming textbooks is that you can't copy and paste the code as it appears on the page into your computer and then run it. Usually they'll just, you know, for brevity, they'll cut out all of the like import statements or the includes or um, there's there's some obvious setup that you have to do beforehand. But they're just trying to show you some algorithm or, or some function like that. But, you know, that's it. It looks like code, but it's not really code because you can't actually run it. Whereas with these, you can actually run the program and you can run them under a debugger so you can see how they work one line at a time. And uh, it, it just adds so much more if you can have real programs uh, that people can play around with. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I think probably my favorite game or my favorite program in this entire one is the Snail Race program. Oh, okay. Uh, it has ASCII art snails, and I draw them by using the at symbol for the shell and then a V for the two eye stalks next to it. And uh, it's not even really a game. You just enter how many snails you want to race, and then you give them names. And then you just watch. You don't even do anything. You just watch them as they slowly move uh, from the left edge of the screen to the right edge <laughs> of the screen. It's completely random. But at the same time, it is exciting when the snail that you've named after yourself wins the, the race. But <laughs> Yeah, we have a, a project in like the end of a basic course on the turtle oh yeah program where it's like a turtle race it's kind of a similar thing where you draw a really rudimentary thing but that you know i mean <laughs> I, i've seen those games you know all over the place the same kind of idea you know watch the horses move or you know or watch the marbles go and and it's nice to see that can be implemented with just you know some text and and make it go yeah yeah it was a lot of fun just taking these ideas and and seeing how much can i can i cut the code down to while still having, you know, something that's fun to run and also something that's, you know, well-documented. Like, I'm not trying to play code golf and and cram everything into, like, three lines of code or anything sure. like that. But And it's, I was really surprised. Um, and a lot of this is just the benefit of, you know, 20 more years of game design that has come out, you know. Or, you know, a lot of these, like, basic programming books or Q-basic programming books from the 90s and 80s and 70s uh, one thing I noticed about a lot of those projects is they have a lot of bugs in them uh, that just weren't taken <laughs> out. And and even the ones that don't, uh, they're not really fun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah so I, I try to try to make pro, uh, little programs where, you know, it's you, you can play around with it. It'll be like a little toy or, or just a small animation to watch or something like that. But it actually does something. It's like, oh, huh, that's neat. And then even if you forget about it 10 minutes later, it was still like mildly amusing and, and gives you that sense of accomplishment when you make it. All right. And you're learning, you know, structures and practicing all these kinds of different things inside there and, you know, learning the, really the meat and potatoes of, of Python programming. Meanwhile, you're actually completing things, you know, that you can look at later and understand how they're working, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to keep the code as simple as possible because I know, some programmers will look at this book and say like, well, this code is like, you could have written it this way, you know, using, you know, classes or, or 
other sophisticated techniques. And, and a lot of times I'm just like, well, no, I just kind of wanted to make these short. And even if they don't follow best programming practices necessarily, they're easier to understand for beginners, which was the whole point that I, w- that I was going for. Yeah, definitely. So I have these general questions that I ask everybody, but actually I have one I wanted to add in this particular case. And it's, what is something you wish you were shown as a beginner in Python? For Python, I think it's, yeah, I would say for Python, I really wish I found out about the dir and help functions. Yeah. Because I I think Python was sort of the first time where I was programming in a language that had an interactive shell and you could just sort of play around with things. The dir function, you can, it's a built-in Python function and you can call it and pass it uh, an object or a function and it will show you the doc string for it. And so you can just easily access the, oh wait, no, sorry, that's the help function, which obviously shows you the help for it. Uh, dir will, you can pass it uh, in object and it'll show you all of the the methods and attributes of that object. And so a lot of times when I'm just sort of, I want to explore some program and I want to say like, hey, what is this thing? It'll give me just, you know, a list of these names. And, and that's not really helpful by itself, but it, it basically tells you, oh, this is the stuff that you should Google or like, hey, this thing looks interesting, you know, look up more about it. And and I feel like that's that's really helped me just figure out, like, what are the next steps after after I'm using something? Because, I, you know, I guess I could always sit down with reference materials and just read through it from A to Z. But um, at the same time, I, I kind of feel like, well, nobody really does that. It, you're sort of just, you know, working on, like, your snail race program and you want to, like think like, hey, how can I make it do this other thing? And and so you start taking a look at, you know, you just sort of uh, stumble your way through and picking up new bits of knowledge along the way. Yeah, it's kind of one of these additional tools that we've mentioned a lot so far, like, you know, the idea of the debugger and um, working inside the REPL, but like typing help and, you know, and endure can really let you do almost half of the work yeah. uh, before you have to go dive out into find the documentation. It's like, like ha- you know, half the time it's like, I can't remember what this thing's called or whatever. And there's these nice alternative REPLs I sometimes will use that, that, that do some of that work for you sometimes where you can just hit like dot and it'll show you the method names and right for like the autocomplete. Yeah. 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 What's something you're excited about currently in the world of Python <laughs> and it could be an event or book or project. I am really excited about PyCon 2022. Uh, knocking on wood uh, there. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, all virtual this year and last year. And in 2019 was sort of like the first time since going to PyCon that I skipped going to PyCon because I was going on, on a trek through the Himalayas, which sounds more exciting than it than it really was but it, it was like a really great trip i mean it was worth missing pycon for i had i known that there would be a large global pandemic and pycon would effectively uh not be the same like in-person meetup for the next two years maybe i would have put the himalayas off for a while <laughs> um yeah. but yeah so at this point you know it's sort of been three years since i've seen a lot of people that i'm used to seeing at pycon and and so yeah, PyCon twenty twenty two. Yeah, how how long can this pandemic last? Really, uh, it's got to be <laughs> over by next year, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> I sure hope so. 
Yeah. All, all the people that I know that are Python people are, are taking everything seriously. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I feel like it's a, it's a unique community in that way, which is great. Yeah. There's yeah. Uh, a wedding that I traveled to a few weeks ago for, for my best friend. Um, and she originally was going to have it, uh, last year, but then of course canceled it. And now it was an outdoor wedding and they had all these precautions and everything, but she was still incredibly nervous uh, about it. And, yeah. And at the time, this was sort of before Delta was was really coming into the news, and so it was like, uh, yeah, but but the wedding was absolutely incredible, and I realized it's been you know a year and a half since I've sat in a room with dozens of friends at the same time, yeah. And so I, you know, that's sort of when I realized, like, wow, I guess I usually get that feeling from PyCon, so. So I'm really hoping things pick up, and it'll be it'll be ready to go next year. Yeah, I'm I'm excited, and I hope I should be able to drive there from here because I'd like to have a car and drive around um, Salt Lake and check out the the area around it. But it, it will be so much fun to see everybody's faces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be cool. All right, what do you, what is something that you want to learn next? And again, it doesn't have to be Python in this case. I mean, my only half-joking answer is time management or project management. <laughs> um, I I. Readers will send me emails saying like, "Hey, you should work on a on a data science book or a machine learning book," and and those are really interesting. But I really don't know anything about it. And besides, I have probably like three or four major book and and video course projects that I'm planning on doing uh, at any given time. Yeah, it was it was kind of uh, weird that uh, the big book of small Python projects came out, you know, a couple of months ago, and it was only six months after my other book beyond the basic stuff with Python, uh, came out and as, yeah, I, I didn't write a book, uh, in six months that I was sort of working on both of these at the same time. Yeah. I always have a lot of plates spinning at the same time. And yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting a lot of those projects done. Have you found tools that, that, that would help you in your time management, the things that, that you've thought about or is uh, it a few I, more, more an internal yeah it's it's more just like random <laughs> spreadsheets that i keep of myself but i will say um there's i'm sure there's other websites like it but there is one website called focusmate.com okay and it basically sets you up with a 50 minute session with just some random stranger for a like like a video conference and then you both just silently work on something and you have that pressure of like going to the gym with a friend where it, it actually makes sure you go to the gym because if you have this scheduled, you have to sit down and at least ostensibly work on on your project for the next 50 minutes. And I found that that's really helped me, especially during the pandemic when when I really couldn't go outside or go to cafes anymore. You know, it gives me an excuse of like, okay, I have to roll out of bed and be up and, you know, at least have the top half of myself presentable to another person <laughs> at such and such a clock. Um, yeah. So, yeah, focusmate.com, I, I think it was like four or five dollars a month. So it, it sort of really helps keep me on task. And, and hopefully. I, yeah. I think you mentioned this last time we talked oh, about yeah. it. I think. But yeah, um, it, this was a good reminder. I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, that thing. Yeah, I'm still... <laughs> it's like three free sessions a week right, to, to yeah, try yeah. it out. So. Yeah, I, I really should have them pay me to, to promote them. Um, but I, I guess they don't because I do it for free. But uh, 
yeah, it's it's a great service. I really like it. And hopefully after the pan the pandemic will be wrapped up pretty soon. So I never have to use it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have any like like shout outs, final shout outs, and then also if you want to share like your social connection kind of information? Oh, uh I didn't have any any shout outs prepared, but um yeah, I was I was about to say that uh this book, like all my books, is available under a Creative Commons license, so you can download it for free from inventwithpython.com. So if you're interested, you can actually just check out all the projects there. And then I also have links to the publisher's site and to Amazon and, and other booksellers. Yeah, inventwithpython.com. It's uh, the big book of small Python projects. Sweet. And then um, do you have a preferred way that people can connect with you? Yeah, probably the the best way uh, is either through email or Twitter, although I'm always behind on those. So I'm al at inventwithpython.com. And then on uh, Twitter, I'm just my name, uh, Al Swigert, which everyone, uh, as of about three or four years ago, keeps reading that as AI Swigert, <laughs> just because fonts are you're, hard. You're a bot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks again for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate yeah. you sharing the book, and it was fun to talk again. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I I hope you stay safe and and take care. Yeah, you too. I'm I'm. I'm I really want to see you at PyCon this year. <laughs> yes. And yeah. Hope to see you at PyCon. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Don't forget, you can try out Rev AI with your first five hours for free at rev.ai. That's rev.ai. I want to thank Al Swigert for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>